Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is Morteza Hajizadeh, your host from Critical Theory Channel. And today uh, we are in the presence of greatness. I'm honored to be talking to Professor Marcus Redeker. Uh, Dr. Marcus Redeker is a distinguished professor of Atlantic history at the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, his histories from below, including the slave ship of human history, have won numerous awards, including George Washington Book Prize, and have been translated into 17 languages worldwide. He has also produced a film called Ghosts of Amistad, uh, which directed Tony Buba, if I'm pronouncing the name correctly, and written a play, The Return of Benjamin Lay. And today he's here to talk to us about uh, his magnum opus, The Slave Ship, A Human History. Marcus, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Uh, I should probably say welcome back. You've been here before, and I'm really glad to be able to talk to you about this book. Um, so... It's normally customary to ask our guests to introduce yourselves, but you're quite well known. You've been here before, so I'll just get to the questions about the book. Let's, let's go. Uh, yeah. So uh, I, I'm kind of curious to know about the title of the book. Do you call this a slave ship a human history? And also it's it's a history from below. Can you tell us why you call it a human history? And, and then give us a definition of history from below. Sure. When I began to think about writing this book, one of my concerns was that the history of the slave trade had become too statistical. And I'm one who believes in the importance of quantitative analysis, but if what you understand the slave trade to be consists primarily of mortality rates and length of voyage and things like that, something profound is missing. And what's missing is the fact that this is a history that happened to real human beings. So I chose the subtitle, A Human History, because I felt that if we're really going to wrestle with uh, this history, and I think we must wrestle with it if we're to imagine a better future, uh, that those quantitative studies don't help us to wrestle. Uh, they, in fact, sanitize the history in very serious ways. So I felt that for moral and political reasons, we needed a human history. Now, as you say, the kind of history that I do has been called history from below. It's also sometimes called a radical history or people's history. But what that implies is that it's a kind of social history, but a specific kind in that uh, you look at the people, you try to see things from the point of view of the ordinary working people who are involved in the period of study. And in this case, that involves looking from the lower deck, looking at the experience of the tens of millions of enslaved people, most of them from West Africa, uh, to see what their experience was and to the extent that we can recover it, uh, find out what they thought about that experience. Uh, This is very important uh, because history from below is about uh, uh, consciousness 
It's about subjectivity. Uh, it's about voice when you can find it. Uh, and especially, maybe most especially, it's treating the people uh, who have normally been left out of the top-down narratives, not only as subjects of history, but as makers of history. So this is one of the things I wanted to explore. And uh, this history from below also takes into account the sailors on board the slave ship, who many of whom were captive laborers themselves. So I wanted to understand their part. And then, of course, uh, I also wanted to understand the officers and especially the slave ship captains and even the merchants. So it really is a view of almost all of the people who were involved in slave ships. Uh, and, and the effort is to present that in a way that makes those people real, real people under real circumstances, making real decisions in real time. So that was my goal. And, and as you said, the, the problem with quantitative, not the problem, really, it's, it's kind of abstract, it's numbers. I've read a lot, of, a lot about the history of slavery, but reading your book, it just gives us that human story. Some of the people that, you, uh, that are in your book, we don't even know their names, but the memory lives with us. And that's, the, uh, that's a very powerful uh, part, of the, part of the book, one of the greatness, uh, great parts of the book. Uh, let's uh, talk a little bit about this aspect of slavery. The, his, it's slave ship. This aspect of, there has been a lot written about slavery, but not really about slave ship and what happens to the slaves while they're on the ship. So why is that? Why, why, why is that this part of the history has been sort of neglected? Well, Morteza, let me begin by saying that I think that the scholarship that's been done on slavery, and, and let's include within that slave resistance, is probably the best body of scholarship done anywhere in the world over the last 60 years or so. We, what we know about slavery in so many different parts of the world right now is just stunning. And of course, there remains a gap between what the scholars know and what uh, the general public knows. We've got to close that gap. But given that, it's even more surprising that we had so few studies of the slave ship. In other words, we've got hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of studies of the plantation and plantation systems. Well, the plantation and the slave ship are the two essential institutions, you might say, of the Atlantic slave system. You can't have one without the other. So why is it that we have so many of one and so few uh, of the other? And first of all, I'd say that uh, most historians of slavery are not accustomed to working with maritime sources. I think that's an issue. I had been working in maritime sources for 30 years before I started this book. Uh, and uh, that was actually kind of a flying head start. I had already gathered a lot of evidence about slave ships in, for example, court records uh, in the uh, admiralty courts uh, in England and around the empire. So, so that was important. Most people are unfamiliar with sources. Uh, secondly, and I think probably more importantly, there's a kind of bias built into our thinking that makes it harder to see ships as historic spaces uh, and instruments. And what I mean by that is uh, we have a kind of bias, a very modern bias, quite uninspected, that history happens on land. And usually it happens in nation states. So landed history and national history, they have become naturalized. That's the way we see 
the past. Now, I, I worked on uh, seafaring subjects for many, many years, and uh, I was trying to come up with a way to describe this bias, and I finally coined a term called terracentrism, that our histories were terracentric. And the problem with this is that it, it sort of implicitly posits that the oceans of the world are not historical spaces, that history somehow doesn't happen at sea. But of course, we know very well that history happens at sea. I mean, this is not true for all uh, areas of inquiry. For example, history of exploration, naval history, they know that history happens at sea. But most national histories do not. So when you think about it, and, and this is one of the big themes of this book, it's important to understand that huge and important global historical processes happen at sea. Uh, class formation happens at sea. Race formation happens at sea. Cultural formation happens at sea. And if you can't see the oceans of the world as a place where history happens, you're missing out on some really powerful formative elements. I mean, how can you write the history of capitalism without taking seafaring into account? This is what created the world market. Uh, so, so that's why I was uh, very keen to add this kind of study to this uh, extraordinary uh, pantheon of work on the history of slavery. Uh, let's talk about the scope of the book. So you, you talk about Atlantic slave trade. So what time period do you take into account in this book? And can you, I know that there are not accurate estimates, but can you give us a rough estimate how many slaves were captured in that time period? I, I can. Yeah, I study uh, British and American slave ships in uh, a slightly elongated 18th century from roughly 1700 to 1807. 1807 is when the British abolished the slave trade. 1808 is when the United States abolishes the slave trade. So that seems an apt terminus. But of course, the trade goes on for another 50 to 60 years, uh, especially among uh, Portuguese slavers. But, um, but, but basically, um, I study this 100 years plus, and this is in some ways the the peak period of the slave trade. And the peak carrier in the peak period was Great Britain. During this period of a little over 100 years, they carried almost 3 million people into bondage. Uh, at the same time, the Portuguese were carrying almost a like number, slightly fewer. Uh, the, the United States, or the American colonies, we should say, up until 1783, carried a much smaller number of about 300,000. But in this period that I've chosen, we're looking at something uh, well more than a quarter of the total number of 12 plus million uh, who were carried across the Atlantic in the Middle Passage. When the numbers are staggering. And there's a database. I was listening to one of your lectures some time ago, and there was this database which was fascinating, accurate record of the, the slave ships and how many slaves they carried. Yeah, I don't remember the name of the database, but I've saved it somewhere on my computer. Um, can you, let's talk about the slave, the structure of the slave ship first, because the way it's written in the book, it's not really a ship. It's a huge piece of technology um, built, and it's a main instrument of capitalism. But we'll talk about this aspect later on. Can you tell us, describe what a slave ship looked like, and how do we know this truck? Is there any slave ship left in a museum somewhere, or are there any records of that anyway? Mm -hmm. let, let me say before I answer that question that the, 
project that you're mentioning is called the Transatlantic Slave Trade Database. It is available online uh, at uh, slavevoyages.org. And this is a, a compilation of data on 36,000 different slaving voyages from roughly 1500 to about to the 1860s, almost 400 years. And that's actually a significant thing for your listeners to think about. This went on for almost 400 years. So, so I do encourage people to visit that. I think this is a great scholarly achievement and uh, it was very important to my own research. Uh, so the slave ship. Now, the first thing to be said about the slave ship is that any kind of vessel could be a slave ship from a, a tiny vessel uh, to a, a, a huge ship. I mean, there are uh, ships that will carry only 20 or 25 enslaved people. These are like small sloops, uh, single masted vessels. But then you have on the other end, these massive ships that could carry eight or 900 enslaved people uh, at a time. So, so the first thing to know is that practically any kind of vessel could be adapted to the slave trade. But beginning in the 18th century, there did come to be a specific kind of vessel. Uh, this evolved in relation to the demand uh, for slaves in the plantation societies of the New World. And uh, this vessel was uh, especially important in a place like Liverpool, which was the leading slave trading port in the world at that time. So the shipwrights of Liverpool and then other places too would build a certain kind of ship that they thought was especially well suited uh, for the slave trade. These would be uh, ships of uh, about 200, 250 tons. That's not their weight, that's their carrying capacity. The average number of enslaved people on board uh, a vessel for the full totality of the trade is a little more than 300. That would consist of uh, 15 to 20 different ethnicities or nationalities. But in order to accommodate uh, these people and specifically to control them, this uh, technology, and, and this is what it was, the ship was, uh, I think, the most important technology to the rise of capitalism. They would build uh, ships with certain features. One of the main features was these vessels had double decks. They had the main deck like every other ship, but they had another deck down below it, which is where you would hold all of the captured Africans. They would be jammed in there in really uh, uh, kind of horrifying ways. But these places, these lower decks, this is where uh, enslaved people spent uh, 16 and sometimes more hours every day on an Atlantic crossing that could take months at a time. So the, the double deck, the lower deck, that's a specific feature of the slave ship. They will also have uh, other important features, one of which is that between uh, decks on that lower deck, there would be holes cut in the side of the vessel, cut in the hull. These were basically airports so that the human cargo could breathe. I mean, if you were carrying a cargo such as textiles or sugar or something like that, you wouldn't cut holes in the side of the ship. 
But since you had to get this, uh, you know, people had to be able to breathe, there are holes. You can actually see these in some of the depictions uh, of the slave ships. Another feature of slave ships is that uh, they had uh, on the main deck around the rails of the ship, they had netting. And this netting was basically there to prevent enslaved Africans from jumping overboard to commit suicide because this was very common. So there's a there's netting to prevent that kind of resistance. And then another feature, which would usually be uh, constructed by the ship's carpenter. In other words, it might not be there uh, at, in when the ship came out of the shipyard, but the ship's carpenter would construct what was called a barricado which is basically a defensive uh, bulwark between uh, the ship, sort of midship, you might say, a place to which, behind which, the crew could retreat in case there was an insurrection on board the vessel. And there were lots of, of uprisings. Uh, at the top of this uh, barricado would be mounted guns so that the crew could fire down on the people who were rising up in resistance. So those are some of the, the main features of the slave ship. Now, there there is no such vessel that has uh, survived. I mean, the average uh, wooden sailing ship has a life of, you know, 30 years or so. But there is a set of plans that were left, uh, actually by a French shipwright for a vessel called the Aurora. Uh, so we can see exactly how a slave ship was constructed based on these plans. I think this vessel dates from the, the late 18th century and was probably sailing out of the port of Nantes in France. Uh, how long did each av- uh, did each voyage take on average with like sometimes 300, 400 or 500 people on board? Okay, well, here's here's how w- one of the things that people have frequently asked me is you've made this argument that that a kind of bonding takes place among the the Africans on the lower deck. How could that possibly happen when they're just making a single passage? Well, here's what you need to know. It took a long time for a, a slave ship captain on the west coast of Africa to gather up a full human cargo. The average was about eight months. So if you are one of the early people to come on board one of these vessels, then you're probably going to be on that vessel for 10 or 11 months, right? So, so they're slowly adding people. They're buying. Uh, the slave ship captains in the 18th century will buy uh, enslaved people, usually a small number at a time, Uh 5, 10, 15 at a time in most parts of West Africa. And then they would move down the coast to get people from another uh, ethnic group that was presumably spoke a different language. So there was a deliberate mixing of languages to prevent people from cooperating. Okay, that's, that, that's actually an important thing to understand. Now, how long the Middle Passage took varied tremendously uh, depending on where the voyage began and where it ended. The shortest middle passage was between the Congo-Angola region of West Central Africa and Brazil. And if you see that on a map, that's much closer than the voyages that might be made from, let's say, uh, uh, what's now Ghana, what was then called the Gold Coast, to a place like Jamaica. That might take... uh, 10, 11, 12 weeks 
sometimes longer. It would depend on the winds. Uh, so the, 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 the time spent on the ship is really significant. And, uh, and that idea that you mentioned, this bonding between, so you call it fictive uh, kinship, that you borrowed this expression from another scholar, fictive um, kinship. Um, I'm, I'm really keen to know more about how slaves were treated. Uh, I, um, it's a very broad question, of course. So how they were treated, what were the acts of rebellion, how did they how, how did they put up resistance? And uh, there's a there's a quote in your book. I'll just read it. Uh, it said, in producing workers for the plantation, the ship factory also produced race. So th- and that's we also argue that these acts of let's say fictive kinships, the idea of race also kind of, was kind of formed on board because these people did not even speak the same language. Uh, it's a broad question, but I would appreciate it if you could talk about okay. it. No, it is a very, it's actually several questions. Yes. <laughs> uh, let, let, let's begin with treatment. Uh, the treatment was violent in the extreme. That's because slave ship captains realized uh, that they had to practice terror against the enslaved in order to try to keep them manageable, so to speak. In other words, there were calculated uses of violence that were uh, central to shipboard life. Uh, so so that's, that's kind of the first point. The second point is the extreme crowding on the lower deck. I think it was William Wilberforce, the uh, British abolitionist, who said, never has so much human misery been concentrated in so small a space. So hundreds and hundreds of people down on the lower deck. Uh, what happens if an epidemic should break out? Well, then very many people can die. Uh, The average mortality rate uh, for the Middle Passage is around 12% for the full uh, life of the slave trades, which means that about one person out of eight would die on a given voyage. Uh, That for for a a, a typical uh, voyage with 300 people, uh, that would be quite a few people more who would die. And every morning, the sailors would go down to the lower deck and bring up the corpses of those who had died overnight, and they would throw them over the rails to the schools of sharks that would follow the vessels across the Atlantic. Uh, I actually looked into this, but you know, abolitionists made a lot of these sharks. I talked to uh, ichthyologists to see, was it true that uh, sharks would follow a vessel like this? They said, absolutely uh, sharks are easily trained to a source of food. So this was the nightmarish stuff of, of this voyage. The, the, the treatment is horrific. In that context, and this I think is uh, the most, maybe the most important thing to understand about the slave trade, people fought back in every conceivable way. I mean, I was actually stunned to see how uh, creative they were in figuring out how to fight back. For example, uh, you could make the argument that the slave trade was a 400-year hunger strike. One of the things that people could do was, would be to refuse to eat, and lots of people did that. Uh, and there are instances in which uh, mistreatment of uh, the enslaved, which was f- frequent, common, would create a hunger strike in response. So so this is a a very important kind of resistance. People, despite those nettings around the rails, would find ways 
to uh, climb up them or cut them and get through them and commit suicide by jumping into the Atlantic, knowing that they were going to be eaten alive by sharks. But there was a belief that underlay this action, the belief being that many West African people believed that when you died, your soul went home to your own village, to your own place. This was called going home to Guinea, which was a, a common word used for West Africa at that time. So uh, suicide is a significant form of resistance. And then it turns out that there are vastly more insurrections than we realized. Uh, for the longest time, uh, a scholar seemed to be stuck on the idea that there were 55 slave uprisings. Now, now we know there were many hundreds of them, and we're talking only about the ones that resulted in significant loss of life. So I think one out of every 10 voyages, and probably more because we don't always have the data, uh, had a major uprising of some kind, despite the fact that these vessels are designed to prevent that kind of thing. The, the resistance goes on. So the resistance... I've argued, becomes a language among a multi-ethnic collection of people. In other words, if you see someone engaging in a hunger strike, if you see someone uh, uh, trying to get out of their chains so they can rise up and try to capture the ship, it doesn't matter what language you speak. You see this, this, this action of resistance, and that then becomes a unifying bond. And what I think is formed uh, is a culture of resistance on board these ships. That culture of resistance will be carried off the ship when the Middle Passage ends and be very important to the formation of landed cultures of resistance. So that's very crucial. But maybe the most important kind of resistance is uh, this fictive kinship. This is a, a concept that anthropologists have used for, for quite a while. It's basically invented kinship. It's not biological kinship. And of course, the people who found themselves on board a slave ship uh, came from societies that were governed by kinship, but those ties had been shattered. So what we find people doing on board the ships is developing a new language of kinship around the idea of shipmate. The people who come over with you on the Middle Passage become your shipmates. They become your brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles. Uh, and that actually also is taken ashore, uh, whereby if you uh, end up on a plantation, uh, let's say you build a family, you have children, you would instruct your children to call your former shipmate aunt or uncle. So it's this re-knitting together of uh, kinship relations, which I find to be uh, not only creative, but inspiring, that people are really trying to rebuild something uh, under these horrific conditions, and they manage to do it. They're also uh, speaking new uh, languages, they're dancing new dances, they're singing new songs. There is a process of cultural formation going on uh, in these horrific conditions on the lower deck, if you look at that process from the western side of the Atlantic, we might call it Pan-African. If you look at it from the eastern side of the Atlantic, we might call it African-American, uh, not in a national sense, but in a hemispheric sense, so that these new cultures are being formed out of these disparate elements of 
many different West African cultures. And this is life affirming. This is all about trying to survive under difficult circumstances. And I think this is uh, one of the most powerful lessons uh, in studying the slave trade, that despite the extremity of the violence and the terror, people fought back. Uh, there is this uh, former slave that you talk about in your book, uh, Olada Equino, who I found pronouncing the name correctly, who became an abolitionist and also wrote his own autobiography in 1789, if I'm not mistaken. Can you talk about him? Who was Olado Equino and uh, what sort of things did he describe in his uh, autobiography? Uh, Lauda Equiano, who was also known by the name of Gustavus Vasa, that was a name that he took later, but when he wrote his autobiography, he wanted to use his African name, um, was a, uh, a man who was born in what is presently Nigeria. Uh, his ethnicity was Igbo. He was taken on board a slave ship at around the age of 10 or 11. So he had a child's perspective in the slave ship, but he does give us uh, the point of view of the people who were going aboard these vessels for the first time. And what he said is kind of revealing. He said, uh, when I first saw the ship, I mean, he had come from inland, so he hadn't seen any vessels. But he said, my, I, I was filled with astonishment to see this thing. And, and anybody who's seen these replica ships know uh, knows how uh, kind of big and complex and powerful they were. And then he said, and quickly, my astonishment turned to terror. Once he got on board the vessel, he saw that uh, this vessel was ruled by the techniques of terror. Uh, for example, uh, a sailor offered him some food. And he was, uh, he was feeling uh, queasy and a little sick as you might imagine. So he, he waved that he didn't want any food. The sailor thought that he was uh, deliberately refusing food and striking, going on a hunger strike. So he got lashed. He got whipped for it. So this kind of thing happened very, very frequently. Uh, so uh, Alauda Equiano uh, went across the Atlantic. He ended up living in several different places. Uh, he was uh, enslaved, but he did manage to gain his freedom, uh, not least because he was able to work as a sailor and get some money. So self-purchase was one avenue to freedom. Um, and when the abolitionist movement began in the 1780s, uh, it became clear that that movement really needed an African voice. So Alauda Equiano, as you say, in 1789, wrote a very powerful and popular autobiography recounting his experiences with slavery. This is, uh, I think this is one of the most important uh, uh, literary works of the abolitionist movement. And he himself was extremely popular uh, going all around Great Britain on the circuit of abolitionist lectures talking about you know, what had happened to him. He helped to make the slave trade real to people. And, and that, I think, is a, a very important uh, thing about his recollection. I should mention there has been uh, a controversy about whether Equiano was actually from Africa, as he claimed. Uh, there are a couple of pieces of evidence to suggest that he might have been born in Carolina, uh, South Carolina. But uh, 
I and I think quite a few other scholars uh, have rejected that suggestion because I don't think it was in any way possible for him to know what he knew about Igbo culture unless he had been born into it. So he is a, a voice of the voiceless, we might say, for the slave trade. Uh, let's talk about some of the stories in the book. One of the most powerful and moving parts of the book was the story of the unknown woman who was thrown overboard uh, over the board of the ship called Polly. And uh, the captain of the ship was James Dwolf. Uh, and there was this uh, sailor, right, John Cranston, who... Anyway, I'm, I'm not going to ruin the story because you're, <laughs> you're the historian. So I'll leave it to you to tell us that story. Yes, the story of Polly is a very moving one. Uh, Polly was a woman who was on a voyage commanded by Captain James DeWolf, who was not only a slave ship captain, but uh, a very wealthy slave trading merchant. And during the Middle Passage, coming uh, across the Atlantic from the Gold Coast, present-day Ghana, Polly uh, came down with what was believed to be the smallpox. So Captain DeWolf summoned his sailors and said, help me throw this woman overboard so that the other slaves won't catch the sickness. And what was really remarkable is that the sailors refused. They said, we'll not do it. So they turned their backs on the captain. So the captain and his cabin boy tied the woman into a chair and then used a hoist to to basically uh, move her overboard and drop her into the water. She was tied up in the chair and she was gagged. That was to prevent her from crying out so that the other enslaved people couldn't hear her. So this woman was effectively murdered by the slave ship captain. Uh, The vessel was, the voyage uh, was completed, uh, went to Rhode Island. And somehow this man, John Cranston, uh, ended up swearing a deposition in a local court describing this murder. Now, I don't know exactly how he ended up in court. My guess is that he he met some abolitionists and they heard the story, and so they encouraged him to come forward. Now, it took a lot of courage to take on someone like uh, James DeWolf. He was a very powerful man. But this, uh, this sailor, John Cranston, did testify before the grand jury, and a copy of his testimony survives. Uh, and I read it, and it's extraordinary. He describes all of these things, and uh, the I guess it's the foreman of the grand jury uh, asks him, what did Captain DeWolf say after the woman was hoisted overboard? And John Cranston said, uh, Captain DeWolf said he was sorry to lose so good a chair. So this gives you the, the, the wanton cruelty involved in this kind of thing. Um, John Cranston disappears on the waterfront Uh, And uh, James DeWolf ends up beating the charges. He's never actually uh, tried for murder, although he should have been. But he was a powerful man. And he does go on to become a United States senator. He is one of the wealthiest people in uh, all of early America. He made all of his money in the slave trade. Uh, I estimated that he probably, his vessels probably carried 
uh, at least 10,000 people into bondage because his vessels made dozens and dozens of, of Atlantic crossings. Um, and I might mention uh, my dear friend Naomi Wallace, the playwright, wrote a play based on this story about James DeWolf. It's called The Liquid Plain. And uh, she and I worked together on this play. I was her historical consultant. And what she wrote to me was, uh, as long as we keep telling the story of this woman tied into the chair, she'll never die. She keeps rising up out of the water again and again and again. So uh, I was very glad that that particular story found a, a literary expression in her play. Yeah, and, and like you said, this was one of the most uh, moving parts of the, the book. I, I read the story and I, I was just horrified. And I actually wanted to ask you about, uh, at the end of the interview, I wanted to ask you about the play because I know that you, 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 you've been writing about this on your Facebook page and I wanted to ask you about the play, which you just mentioned. And I think it's going to be, it's going, it's going to be played somewhere on the stage soon, right? That's actually a different play. Oh, oh I see. Uh, because after Naomi and I, Wallace and I worked on uh, this play, The Liquid Plain, which is, which is about the slave trade, uh, we decided to write a play based on another one of my books called The Fearless Benjamin Lay, uh, the Quaker dwarf who became the first revolutionary abolitionist, uh, a man who would spatter fake blood on the heads of slaveholders to humiliate them in public. So we have been working for several years on that play, and it will open in London uh, at the Finborough Theater uh, on June 13th, mm, 2023. Mm. Uh, earlier in the interview, you mentioned that some of the sailors didn't even like to be on board. They they had to. Uh, and there is one sailor, James Field Stanfield, uh, James Field or James James Stanfield that you talk about in the book. Uh, he became an abolitionist later. Can you tell us a little bit about him? He's a fascinating figure, and I must say, was not at all well known. For many many years, James Field Stanfield was uh, was he was like lots of other people. He he ended up kind of on a slave ship, more or less by mistake. He didn't really know what he was getting into. Uh, he was a member of the crew. He was a common sailor. Uh, he went through a horrific voyage of extremely high mortality. Uh, uh, people don't know it, but the mortality uh, among the crews uh, was usually as high and sometimes higher than the mortality among the enslaved. And on Stanfield's voyage, I think a crew of 40 went out. That was a fairly common number of sailors to have on board a ship. And only three of them came back to Liverpool alive. So when, you know, some years later, uh, the great abolitionist Thomas Clarkson is looking for people who have direct experience of the slave trade. He goes to Liverpool, uh, to Bristol, uh, to London to talk with sailors to find out what was their experience on board the ship. He finds out about Stanfield, and Stanfield writes an account of his time at sea, a, a very uh, moving and sympathetic account uh, of the horrors on board the ship. He also wrote an epic poem about the slave trade. So, so Stanfield is one of the people who helped to educate the, uh, the, you might say, the middle and upper class abolitionists like Clarkson and Wilberforce, 
who are usually given credit for uh, for building the abolition movement. Well, the truth is they knew almost nothing about the slave trade. They had to find people who had been on it. So people like Stanfield and people like Equiano were the ones who really knew the terrible truth of these vessels and their writings had quite an impact. And uh, you just mentioned Thomas Clarkson, and I want to know a little bit more about him as well. He was a British uh, abolitionist. Uh, he, he was against British, uh, let's say, uh, slave trade. Can, can you tell us a little about him and his role in this abolitionist movement? Yeah, Thomas Clarkson is really, uh, in my view, vastly more important than was Wilberforce, who is usually the mm. symbolic uh, leader of the slave trade. Clarkson was a young student at Cambridge when he began to read a very small but powerful body of literature created by Quakers who had were the first group actually to turn against the slave trade. Here's where Benjamin Lay comes back in. He wrote a, a book against slavery in 1738, but Anthony Benizé was sort of his, uh, uh, his, one of his followers. He wrote several books and pamphlets and, and so these American Quakers had a huge impact on Clarkson, who was the person who convened the first meeting of the Anti-Slave Trade Abolition Society uh, in uh, 1786, 87. So, so Clarkson actually uh, calls together a group to say, let's, let's try to abolish the slave trade, and then we know that slavery will die. Well, it didn't turn out that way. It turns out slavery was able to survive the abolition of the slave trade. But Clarkson himself was a relentless gatherer of information. He traveled uh, thousands upon thousands of miles all around Great Britain to gather information. And the most important things he learned happened on the docks of the slave trading cities. So this is, in fact, in Liverpool, where uh, Clarkson showed up, he was so disliked by the slave trading merchants, uh, he had to have a bodyguard. They actually attempted to kill him once, then attempted to throw him off of a pier, but he managed uh, to prevent that. And then he would thereafter go around armed with uh, a man named Alexander Falconbridge, who was a, a former physician uh, in a slaving vessel who had uh, subsequently turned against it. So this was, a, this was kind of an armed battle. So important was this information that, that uh, Clarkson was gathering. And I'll just give you another example. He found a black sailor by the name of John Dean and uh, wanted to interview him about his experience. He was living in some poor hovel. I mean, sailors were notoriously poor in this period. Uh, and John Dean talked about the way in which the captain had tortured him by flogging him and then dripping liquid uh, lead into the wounds of his back. And he at some point stood up and took off his shirt to show Clarkson what this looked like. And Clarkson was really moved by this story. So Clarkson was, was kind of, a, to me, he's, he's a very important figure in, in gathering knowledge and gathering information, which could then be used in abolitionist publics um, to make the slave trade real to people. And this, of course, includes the famous graphic, the famous drawing of the bodies of Africans carefully arranged on the lower deck of the slave ship, an image that most people have seen. This became a very powerful piece of visual propaganda 
for the uh, abolitionist movement because suddenly it allowed people to visualize what the lower deck of a slave ship actually looked like. And when they did that, they were horrified. And, and there is another abolitionist, John Newton, but uh, who also wrote a poem called Amazing Grace as an act of penance, but because uh, his story is a bit different because he was a slave uh, trader. He was a slave merchant himself earlier. Yes, John Newton is known as the author of a very famous hymn, Amazing Grace, which is still sung all over the world, especially and ironically in black churches. Uh, people can go to YouTube and see some very powerful renditions of Amazing Grace. And the story that was told about John Newton for many years was that uh, he was involved in the slave trade. And then he had a kind of Christian awakening uh, he left the sea, and then he became an abolitionist and spoke out against the trade. Well, that's not how it happened. John Newton was a slave ship captain. He went on several voyages. He participated in uh, torturing the enslaved. This we know from his journal. He never actually made a conscious decision to leave the sea. I think it was after his fourth voyage. Uh, he was preparing to go out on a fifth voyage. And he had a stroke, so he was no longer able to captain a ship. He had already had his Christian conversion two voyages earlier. So we have correspondence that John Newton wrote from the captain's cabin of a slave ship touting his Christian ideals. Uh, So so that, that was not the crucial thing. What happened was... Very slowly, once Newton left the sea and became a minister, he began to, uh, you might say, cultivate his doubts. And then about 20 years after he left the sea, he finally came out against it, against the slave trade. And he did participate as a witness uh, in some parliamentary hearings on the slave trade in 1788, 1789, 1790. And as you can imagine, since... Uh, Newton had captained this slave ship, he knew a lot about what he was talking about. So, uh, and I'll just add this. One of the things that slave ship captains routinely did was to use uh, thumb screws. This is an instrument of torture in which you place somebody's thumbs under a metal loop and turn uh, a key and crush their thumbs. Uh, and someone asked Newton during these hearings if he had ever, uh, if these, was it true that slave ship captains used uh, these thumb screws? And Newton's answer was uh, quite deliberately vague. Uh, he said, yes, they have been known to be used. What he didn't say was that he himself had used them in the aftermath of a rebellion, trying to force people to confess who the ringleaders of that uprising actually were. So John Newton's story is a complicated one. It's not the kind of a story of Christian grace that you might think, but I do give him credit for becoming an effective voice against the slave trade when he finally turned against it. Um, Let me ask you a final question. In the light of uh, recent movements such as Black Lives Matter, how is this book relevant to today's day and age? And I particularly, I'm interested to know more about 
people who have who acknowledge slavery, who acknowledge the atrocities of slavery, but they sort of have a dismissive rhetoric saying that because I, I tried to listen to many people who were talking about, especially during Black Lives Matter, they said, like, it's true, but let's look forward. You're so much hung up on the past. They're well-meaning people, but I guess this kind of reductive understanding of the situation as if it's something that happened in isolation 200 years ago and it just vanished into the internet, it's all gone. So what do you think of this kind of rhetoric and how is this book relevant to us today? You know, I'm happy to say that the book had a significant surge in sales in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd. And as the Black Lives Matter protests were going on in streets all around the world, I mean, we have to remember that uh, that was probably the biggest global anti-racism uprising ever. And it went on all around the world. So so the question is, uh, how is history relevant to a powerful contemporary movement that wants to imagine a better future? Well... History means everything because, in fact, we live with the consequences of the slave trade in the United States. I won't speak for other countries. We live with the consequences of the slave trade every minute of every day of our lives. Things that were created during the slave trade are still affecting us. So it's not enough to say that Yeah, the slave trade consisted of a collection of atrocities. It's more than that. And as many people around the world are increasingly uh, saying, the slave trade represents a crime against humanity. Now, what's meant by that is a crime against humanity is something that affects many generations after the commission of the original acts. So, therefore... Uh, The slave trade ended, well, didn't really end, but uh, in the early 19th century, it went on through much of the 19th century, but we still live with the consequences such as uh, discrimination, racial discrimination. Uh, We live with the, the idea of deep structural inequality. That also owes a lot to the experience of slavery. We live with premature death. We live with premature death, uh, and we live with things like highly racialized incarceration. So I think this history is crucial. We're not going to get anywhere, in my view, unless we take on board this history, uh, the violence, the terror of the slave trade, but also, crucially, the struggle against it, because it was never passively accepted. You know, one of the messages of my book is that even under the most extreme conditions, the people forced onto those slaving vessels did not accept their fate. They did everything they could to fight against it. Uh, and I think we have to honor that. And I think if we are going to imagine something better, we've got to deal with this history. Uh, I, one of the conclusions of the book is that uh, reparations are absolutely necessary. But even before reparations, we just have to have, to have basic recognition that it happened. Uh, and, and, and there is still a tremendous amount of denial in the United States. As you know, there's a big controversy right now about teaching black history. Uh, conservatives are afraid that the true history might actually be taught 
and learned and acted on. So they're resorting to censorship of all kinds. And I think uh, this is a, you know, and, and the reason why this controversy is going on is because we have made real progress in, in learning about slavery and in teaching about slavery over the past, you know, six or seven decades, inspired by and large by the civil rights movement and the black power movement. We have a new history now. Uh, and there are a lot of people who are spending a lot of time, first of all, pretending that we don't have that history. And secondly, doing everything, everything they can to censor it. So to me, these are signs of just how important the history is. If it wasn't powerful, people wouldn't be trying to stop it. Uh, but it's both powerful and true. And, and believe me, the overwhelming majority of historians uh, understand these truths about uh, the power of the Atlantic slave system. It's just got to be taught at every level of education uh, and to the general public. And that is one of the reasons I wrote the book. Um, yeah, go, ahead, go ahead and ask. Yeah, um, so before I bring this, uh, before we end this conversation, is there, apart from the play you mentioned, is there any other work that you're currently, any other book, book project you're currently working on? Yes. In fact, I'm writing uh, a sequel to The Slave Ship, which is going to be called Freedom Ship. It's about escaping slavery by sea in the period, the 30 years or so before the Civil War, when hundreds, if not thousands, of enslaved people in southern port cities, places like uh, Savannah, Georgia, Charleston, South Carolina, uh, Norfolk, Virginia, got onto vessels with the help of dockers and sailors and market women and other waterfront workers. They managed to get on board these vessels and would be taken to the northern ports where they would gain their freedom. Uh, this is, a, again, our terra-centric bias has made us think that the Underground Railroad happened only on land. Uh, I actually think that uh, if you look at the total number of people who actually escaped, probably a majority of them did so by sea. So I'm writing the history of this, and uh, it's, it's really a study in uh, self-emancipation. It's a study uh, of the ways that people worked use lateral connections within the waterfront working class to gain their freedom. And I think this is a story that can, that can help us to understand both the nature of slavery and the resistance to it. Fascinating. And when is it coming out and which publisher, if you know? It's, uh, I'll probably finish the book this summer, which means that it would come out in 2024 uh, with Viking Penguin. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope to be able to talk to you about that book next year. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed this conversation. It was a great honor for me to be able to talk to you about this wonderful book. And I do strongly encourage our listeners to read the book. It's a, it's a very accessible book. The stories are fascinating and at the same time, sometimes horrifying. Uh, but it's a part of the history. It's a human history of uh, slavery, an aspect of the slavery that has rarely been talked about. Professor uh, Marcus Redeke, thank you very much for talking to us on New Books Network. It's been my pleasure, Morteza. Thank you for inviting me.